one on a Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Happy New Year, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. What better way to start the year? It's like a little Spanish, please. This is exactly what this is. Yeah. <laughs> this is a hot track, though. This is pretty good. Is, yeah. So 2024 is upon us. Big Band Tuesday is upon us. The Halford and Bruff Show is upon you. We're back. Loving life. It's a Canucks game day. We're into a new year. Feel great. How do you feel? Huskies are in the title game. Huskies are in the title game. It's amazing. Seahawks are well. The Seahawks managing to screw their way out of the playoffs. Yeah, it's pretty great. Uh, Halvin Bruff in the morning. Hour two. It's brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studios. Jason's here to tell you more about Kintech. Kintech Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Powered by thousands of five-star Google reviews. They, they, we don't even have a specific number. It's just thousands. It's, it's, it's like too many. Thousands is specific. Sore feet? What are you waiting for? Kintec. No, no. Didn't feel that one. Kintec. Two, just say, two. Just, just say Kintec. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Two, hold on. two. You got to give, you gotta give the, the warning for the people that might be. I did that once already. Just don't mention what game the score was before. <laughs> it could, there could be any a, game. There is a sport being played at the moment. Uh, okay. Folks. If you're taping the game and you got a beta cassette in the VCR and you're like, don't say anything. I was going to watch it later. Uh, avert your ears because I'm going to give you an update in the Canada Czechia game quarterfinals of the 2024 World Juniors in Sweden. It's now 2-2. Canada's tied it up after trailing 2-0. Oh. Well, don't there's an early, nearly chance there. Don't do that. Is that a, is, is that illegal to call it? Yes. Call this game. Your uh, oh, was illegal. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we've we've gone down that <laughs> road that was, before. That was a call. Oh, it did not go well. Two-two, uh, Canada, Czechia, right near the end of the second period from Sweden. Uh, Edward Furlong, related to John Furlong, scored for the Canadians to make it two-two. I don't think uh, was it was it Edward Jake Furlong. Edward Furlong was from mm-hmm. the Terminator. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. That's right. With the squeaky voice. Uh, okay, so we've got a lot to get it was John into. John Connor. Sorry? He was John yeah. Connor. Yes, he was yeah. John Connor, Andy. Mm-hmm. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> yep. He sure was. Anyway, ah, that was is... a movie. <laughs> and Arnold Schwarzenegger was the, the Terminator. Terminator. <laughs> yeah. He was bad in the first one, mm-hmm. and he was good in the second one. <laughs> this is the show now. We don't even make movie references. We just acknowledge that movies were made in the past. And give you a general idea of what the movie's about. Most basic possible plot summary. (laughs) Was it good or bad? I don't know. You tell me. All right. So uh, the Canucks play the Senators tonight at Rogers Arena before embarking on a seven-game road trip. That's going to take them through places like... Uh, New Jer- they got the New Jersey, New York, New York, three games in four nights. Yep, and then they're one. like, you guys tired? Well, you got three games left on this road trip after that one. So that's going to be a tough one. I think it starts in St. Louis on Thursday. But first, the Ottawa Senators, and the Canucks are going to hope to leave Rogers Arena on a positive note. Uh, their last game at Rogers Arena against the Philadelphia Flyers did not go well, although we did get a good laugh when Nikita Zadorov tried to go coast-to-coast. That was about the, the only thing. That was about the only positive from that game. Um, the Canucks have practiced three times in the last four days, so they should be sharp. And a lot of people have noted, and they're not wrong to note, that Phil Giuseppe. Found money, Phil, mm-hmm. is back on that second line where he started the season with JT Miller and Brock Besser. Nils Hoglander had a run there 
Uh, Andre Kuzmenko spent a little bit of time there mm-hmm. when he was knocked off the first line, sent down to the, the Miller line, but none of them, according to Rick Tockett, had staying power there. So Phil DiGiuseppe is back. And we all know what Phil DiGiuseppe is. He's a guy that does all the staples that Rick Tockett likes. He's a details guy. Right? He's also still a guy that, for most of his pro hockey career, has bounced between the AHL and the NHL. He's bounced around to a bunch of different organizations. He was a great story at the beginning of the season because, wow, here's this guy that just seems to have found a role with JT Miller and Brock Besser. Well, he lost that role. And now he's got it back. But I think it's really fair to wonder. And frankly, I'll conclude it. The Canucks are one top six winger short. And there's no one else really that fits the bill for what they want on that line. Unless. Unless. Unless you're willing to break up the third line. But who wants to break up the third line? Like, sure, I could. Like, I or maybe honestly, make the third line to, the second line. But Anyone co- think about that. Well, well, at times it already is. Well. To be to, perfectly honest with you, the third line has been all reliable. Whether it's uh, Pew Suter to started the season as the as the center, but now it's Teddy Bluger um, in between Connor Garland and Dakota Joshua. Now, I don't want Connor Garland on that second line, but. I could see Dakota Joshua on that second line, but then you can't break up the. Th- you don't want to. I don't think you want to break up the third line. It's going. You know, I think there are some guys out there, and probably not the time to do it now. I don't think the Canucks are desperate enough to have to go out there and add a winger now. But when the trade deadline comes up in March, I wonder if that's going to be one of those things that Patrick Galvin and Jim Rutherford and all the pro scouts are looking for. I think in a guy like. God, I don't even know. Frank Vetrano, who is in Anaheim right now, right? A player of that ilk where you're not going to break the bank to get him, and it might not be one of those long-term ads. But the Canucks, if they're still in a solid playoff position by the trade deadline, like we need to start thinking about being a playoff team as opposed to, you know, we're so (laughs) – we're so conditioned to be like, that's the sell time. Mm-hmm. Can, right? I, like, can I throw a name at you? The guy you're going to see tonight, as a matter of fact? Mm-hmm. Vladimir Tarasenko. Mm, not on that line. Pending. No. no. He, actually, no. Actually, no. The answer is no. 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 Why not? Because he's not a 200-foot player. And if that line is going to be tasked with shutting down the other team's best lines, then you're not going to put Tarasenko on it. Eh, 22 points in 30 games. He'd be a top six winger as a rental. I think he might be intriguing because he's did you, hear, did you not hear anything that I said? Like I We all know that Tarasenko can score and produce offense. Well, that's kind of what they need from that guy. No, they need a they need a line that can play that can defend that can take on the other team's top lines and shut them down. Agreed, they do need that, but I don't know in one breath. I'm not going to fight with you over Tarasenko. I'm, I'm just throwing, I'm just throwing it out. There I just said a, no, and I just said no. Guy. Yeah. And I, you, I pushed back on it, and a few people have texted in, Pod Colson. I'm like, okay, you're asking a lot for a guy that's down in the AHL, and I think he's playing fine in the AHL, but I don't think he's knocking down the door right now. And you're going to put him into a top six role? I'm, okay, I, I am I am very curious if between Tockett, the coaching staff, and the front office, if they're comfortable – going with what they've done over the first 30-plus games of the season, which is, honestly, switch on, switch off. Like When Hoaglander's going, you play him there. 
And then when he's not, because the inevitability is that he will go through stretches like this because he's not a consistent player, you put old reliable Phil Giuseppe back in the lineup. And then when that's not going and Phil kind of crests in his play, maybe doesn't necessarily live up to the billing of being a second liner, you go back to Hoaglander, who's been waiting patiently in the wings. That's a dangerous game to play mm-hmm. because what happens? You just end up waiting for the bottom to fall out with either guy. It's like, well, it's an inevitability that he's going to hit the skids here. We have to flip another guy into that spot. Ramon texts into the Dunbar Lumber text line. He says, put Mikheyev on line two on, and Tarasenko on line one. There Ramon, you are you trying to give Rick Tockett like, a heart attack or something like that? Can you imagine, imagine a line with Petey, uh, Tarasenko, and Kuzmenko? Like, <laughs> I mean, the reaction would be Guys. hilarious. <laughs> Wow, like even turning three different shades of purple on the bench. Even when Tarasenko w- was in his prime, his coach didn't trust him defensively. It wasn't right? a stalwart like, defender, no. Like this, this isn't just because he's Russian, but similar game to Kuzmenko, right? They just, you know, you like him offensively, and there are times that you don't love him defensively. So I just read one of the charts about him from this season with Ottawa, yeah. and here's what the analyst describes Tarasenko as. Is, okay. What he gives up essentially submarines all of the value that he creates offensively. My kind of guy. He is so bad. I love I love yeah. a guy that cheats on defense for offense. It's my favorite <laughs> thing. Uh, no, I, honestly, the only reason that I brought his name is one, Otto was playing tonight, sure. so we're going to yeah, get a chance yeah, to yeah. see him. But also, it was from Greg Wyshynski, our previous guest's trade tiers, T-I-E-R-S. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of available wingers. If you look at the market right now, going into the trade deadline, like Frank Vitrano and Tarasenko aren't just on the list. They're kind of on the top of the list of available but the wingers. List, but the list will grow. Or the list strength. will grow as it gets closer to trade deadline. Uh, maybe stamp, at Stamkos? Well, Stamkos is, kind of funny. Stamkos is the... That's going to really dictate the entire trade market going into March, but so, I digress. So I think the conclusion from this conversation is that a lot of people would like to see the Canucks add another top six winger um, because they're looking at Phil DiGiuseppe being bumped up to that second line and going, we love Phil DiGiuseppe, but we don't know if he's a top six guy on a team that wants to go to the playoffs and do something, right? Not just be there. Um, So we'll see on that one. Um, The other question that I had, and this was after reading an article that IMAC wrote on Thatcher Demko, Um, The question is, is it fair to say that the Canucks have yet to earn the benefit of the doubt from fans and analysts? And there is a text in that said, your guest host, Brooke Ward, guaranteed the Canucks make the playoffs this year. year. Are you guaranteeing it as well? Uh, I wouldn't guarantee it. First of all, my word is worth nothing. So don't worry about any guarantees. But I think the Canucks probably have a 90% chance of making the playoffs. That's like the least hot take thing ever. The Canucks have a 2024 with a bang, folks. The Canucks have a 90% chance of making the playoffs and hit the hot take horn. Like that is that is not a hot take. It would have to be the most epic of collapses for them to miss the playoffs. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. Not that it couldn't happen. But here's the thing. Unlikely. I'm I'm gonna read a few things that Thatcher Demko said. Okay. Um, I think sometimes the narrative is either we're the best team in the world or the worst. I'm proud of what we've been able to do, 100%. I think this has been the expectation for this core coming into each season, and we just hadn't been able to do it. But if I were to say something in the dressing room for our group, it's that we haven't done anything. If we're not careful or we don't respect the work that we put in and realize that we have to continue doing that, 
we're going to lose what we've accomplished in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to say, we obviously got off to a very good start, but I remember there was a span there where we lost two in a row early on, which is very normal. Like, that's super normal for a team to do, lose especially two in a row. Can- especially for the Canucks. But we were two and two after four games, you know, and I kind of had that sense in the room, like, oh, here we go again. It's just breaking those thought patterns and just continuing to build the confidence that we deserve to have at this point. Now, to the Canucks' credit, for almost half a season now, they've bounced back from any poor performances. Or they've had some middling stretches, but no disastrous stretches. So, But I think it was really interesting that Demko said that, first of all, there was that sense in the room. Sure. Because you remember when the Canucks went to Philly and they lost, and then they went to, I think it was Tampa next. Tampa and they played a little later. bit better, but they still lost, and the Canucks were then 2-2. Two and two, And all of a sudden, you're looking back and going, yeah, the 8-1 win over the Oilers was great, but the second win over the Oilers, I mean, the Oilers probably deserved to have that one. That one all came down to goaltending. You go and lose to Philly, and you look terrible doing it, and then you lose to Tampa Bay. Ugh. Like, this team is average. Average at best. And it's interesting that Demko was saying like those same thoughts were occurring in the room. Yeah, I, and it's not surprising. There was no proof of concept that what the Canucks wanted to do, meaning not be a terrible team and win games and get to the playoffs, there was no proof of concept that it was going to happen with this group. They had nothing to hang their hats on. They had no, well, we've done this in the past, or this is the way that we go about our business. They had staples and identity and non-negotiables from the head coach, but there was no proof that any of it was going to work because it hadn't in the past. Now, the thing that I'll say about this 36-game span that the Canucks have gone over the first third of the season here, almost a half season, is they have shown a remarkable ability to keep the losing streaks at no more than two. That, to me, is maybe the biggest takeaway of the year. That's incredible. They've had... Two two game losing That's streaks. It. That's it. Two of them. And one mm. of them happened in the first four games of the season. Since then, you mentioned that quote from Demko, and we put it in bold face in the notes just so we can reiterate it. As they said, you know, you lose a pair of games in the NHL, it's quite normal. Yeah. Lots of teams go on two game losing streaks. The key is how do you stem the tide and not have it go to three? four, and five. And what do you do to accomplish that? And in the Canucks case, and it sounds a lot like coach speak a lot of the time and cliches and everything else, but it is getting back to the things that have made us successful. And the Canucks can now finally say, we are successful. We're 23, 10, and three at this stage of the season. Like there is proof of concept that if we do the things correctly, we will win more games than we lose. That is a refreshing thing. That's why like for tonight against Ottawa, It'll be very curious, but I think optimistic for, from a Canucks perspective to say the mistakes and glaring issues that you had against Philadelphia won't repeat themselves tonight mm-hmm. against Ottawa. Because you be invested ch- in the game from the very start. Right. You've had a chance to practice. There's going to be a change in the lineup. Giuseppe's in. Hoaglander's out. And I think that this is once again one of those litmus test type moments for a Canucks team that can say, unlike years past, we're not going to let the losses pile up. And yeah. we're not... When there would be a two or three game losing streak in years past, you would see guys go off the board to try and make a play 
to try and get the team out of it. Well, I need to be the one that's going to get this team out of this funk, or I need to make a play right now because nobody else is doing that. Nikita Zadorov is going to pick this puck up and go coast to coast and save the day. So it doesn't always work. <laughs> well, I thought I think there were signs of uh, of last season in the Philly game. There and, were, and hopefully, hopefully that was a one off, and the Canucks have been good at bouncing back from poor performances. And make no mistake about it, this first start of January is going to be a test for the Canucks. They play Ottawa tonight, and Ottawa is a desperate team. Technically, they're last in their division, but they haven't played many games, right? They played, I think, something like, I don't know, what, six or seven fewer than the Canucks? I have to check the numbers there, but they haven't played many games. So they're a desperate team. They got a new coach, and they're trying to, trying to save the season. Then you go into St. Louis on Thursday, and this is another team that's made a coaching change, Mm -hmm. and they have been playing better. Not amazing, but they've been playing better. And then the trip really starts to get tough. Next Saturday, they're in New Jersey. They never play well against the Devils. There just doesn't seem to be a very good matchup against the Devils. And then uh, they get a day off, and they play the Rangers, which would be in some people's power rankings as the top team in the NHL. Mm -hmm. Good team. Very next day, you got Bo Horvat and the Islanders. So you're doing that on a back-to-back. Those four games alone would be a tough trip. Then you tack three more on. You play in Pittsburgh, in Buffalo, and finish it up in Columbus. Now, you might be like, well, Buffalo's not very good. and They're not. Columbus is even worse. They are. But, you know, that's at the end of a road trip. You're tired. And then you're finally home. But that, these eight games over this next little while, only one of them at home, seven on the road, we're going to – we're gonna. I mean, we've been saying this all season, and most of the answers have been positive, but we're going to learn a lot about this Canucks team because this is a serious, serious challenge. Well, as we switch gears here on the Halford & Breath Show on Sportsnet 650, Happy New Year, everyone, by the way. We're going to talk about another team that we found a lot out about, not just on Sunday, but throughout this regular season, and that is the Seattle Seahawks. For as up and down and as crazy and at times as bad a season as this had been, going into Sunday's game at home against a third-string quarterback, Mason Rudolph, and the Pittsburgh Steelers, at least, at least the Seattle Seahawks could say this. We control our own destiny. If we win our last two games of the season, we are going to the playoffs. That is now no longer the case because the Seahawks fell 30-23 to to a Steelers team that ran left. Ran right, ran up, ran down, and ran all over the Seahawks on Sunday. Seahawks are now 8-8. Eight and eight. They need help to get into the playoffs. I don't think that help will be coming. And it was one of the worst tackling performances I have seen from a professional football team in an awfully long time. Do you remember how we were kind of casually making fun of the Steelers' offense the whole year? Like, I would just happen to be watching Steelers games for whatever reason because yep. I don't get all the extra games i just just get what's given you used to ask our next guest mike tanner all the time well what's going on with the steelers offense offense? and i don't think it was them that just dramatically improved in the game against seattle i think seattle's defense was that bad and the hard thing for me in watching a performance like that was you know how i like to blame people you know how i like to uh, because it makes me feel better oh i'm aware blame someone very aware very aware yeah i like to like if something goes wrong i like to blame laddie or a dog or alford not me of course i never make mistakes but i didn't know who to blame because you can sit there and go okay well you can blame the players right you're professional football football players tackle like you've done it before 
So tackle. How many times did the Seahawks get like stiff armed out of the way? Repeatedly. Right? Like reek woolen. Like, hey, try going low. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, or you can blame, you know, the coaching staff, whether it's Pete or defensive coordinator Clint Hurt. Maybe they need to do something different. I don't know. I'm not the expert there, but it didn't look very good. Or I also found myself blaming John Schneider. I'm like, maybe you should find players that know how to tackle. Remember all that draft capital and you spent on Jamal Adams, who wasn't even playing and hasn't been good? Like, that's part of the frustration on this defense, right? Yeah, it was nice to have Witherspoon back, and he did make a couple plays, but, you know, and I think the addition of Leonard Williams has been good. I think he's been a nice addition for them, but, you know, I, I, this defense right now is bad, right? And the most frustrating thing about the Steelers game was everyone knew their game plan. It wasn't going to be like, we're going to let Mason Rudolph go wild, right? Like cook he's, Rudolph cook. Yeah, let Mason cook. Like you did, let, He did actually look pretty good. He did because yeah. they had a great running game, uh-huh. right? Like everyone knew that the Steelers were going to come in and be like, we're just going to run the ball and we're going to try and control the line of scrimmage on both sides. And they did that. Mm-hmm. And that was frustrating to watch because it is really, really – and we've seen this for a few years. Right, we, I've compared the Seahawks' run defense to the Canucks' PK, right? Earlier in the season, the Canucks' PK looked improved. Mm-hmm. Early in the season, the Canucks' run defense looked improved. But it's still a major weakness. I thought it was very telling during the broadcast that longtime stalwart NFL former linebacker Jonathan Vilma, who was on the call, must have said, I don't know, 15 times during the game, hey, you can call up whatever scheme you want. Yeah. You can coach them up however you want, but if players aren't going to make tackles, it ain't going to make a lick of difference. They did not tackle. Here's a stat for you. The Steelers gained 132 of their 202 rushing yards after first contact. That stat stat is basically a broken tackle stat, or if you want to look at it from a defensive perspective, inability to make tackles. But is that not also – it's multiple things. It's first of all, the first tackler is not making it, but also – He's not even holding up that player enough for everyone else to go tackle the that most player. yards after first contact that Seattle has allowed in ten years, and it happened. It didn't just happen at home. It happened in a game where you controlled your own playoff destiny. The mm-hmm. players controlled so much of this, and they came up so short. Now, if you want to extrapolate it out, yeah, you can say, is this on the front office for the guys that they brought in? Because that front seven, they did bring in. They brought back Bobby Wagner. They did add Leonard Williams. Like They've made additions to the group, but nobody can tackle. And it's happened really since week four or five of the regular mm-hmm. season. As Jason pointed out, there were no secrets about what Mike Tomlin and the Steelers wanted to do on Sunday. Anyone that did a preview of that game, Associated Press or otherwise, all the game previews said the same thing. They got a third-string quarterback. They're going to come in and they're going to run the ball with Harris and Warren. And then they just went out and did it. It's very disheartening, but it's been a disheartening year. In a lot of ways, I'm not glad, but I kind of feel vallocated, vallocated, Stephen vallocated, Stephen vallocated, uh, vindicated and validated, thank you, that this is the way that the season is going to end because they don't really deserve to be a playoff team. They, they have not can't. played well enough this year at any time to be a playoff team. The Seahawks can still make the playoffs if they beat Arizona. And that's not a given, considering Arizona just went into Philly and beat the Eagles. And Green Bay loses to Chicago, which is possible. Chicago has been playing a lot better. Maybe future Seahawks QB um, uh, Justin Fields can give the Bears a big win well, over, is it over not, the Packers. Is and, it, the, is, and, and like the Bears are going to be motivated for this, believe me. 
They are. As a team, they've been owned by Green Bay. Like Aaron Rodgers used to, you know, make a big thing about absolutely owning the Chicago Bears. So if the Seahawks can get a win over Arizona, which they should be able to do, and the Bears can upset Green Bay, the Seahawks will make the playoffs and they'll get, who are they going to get then? Dallas maybe? Most likely, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, there's still a lot to be shaken out in the playoff picture. Speaking of that playoff picture, our next guest, Mike Tanier, our NFL insider from The Messenger, is going to join us to talk about everything else that happened in the National Football League, non-Seahawks related. There were a lot of big developments as we go into the final week of the regular season. You are listening to the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drans. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On a Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Accurate Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Accurate Dealer today. He is normally our Monday morning quarterback, but because it is Tuesday, he is now our Tuesday morning quarterback. He is Mike Tannier. Our NFL insider from The Messenger, he joins us now on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, good morning, Michael. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, and thank you for not calling me yesterday morning. Ah, yes, right. How was your New Year, Mike? Uh, it was it was great. I worked, uh, so I had a work hangover on Monday. <laughs> I had my usual work hangover from watching all of that football, but it was still nice to sleep a little late and to take a moment to digest all of these playoff scenarios, which I still don't 100% comprehend. Did you watch Michael Penix at all yesterday? Did you watch any college football? I know sometimes you like to compartmentalize. You're just like, the NFL season is the NFL season, and then once that's over, then I get into prospects. That, that's exactly it. I, I only watched a little bit of the, uh, the first game. I did not. I was not awake for the later <laughs> game. Rest assured, it, it will be DVR'd and watched by the time of the draft. Did Penix ball out? He was incredible. As a guy that's watched him a lot over the last couple of years, he, this was probably his signature game. He was really wow, good, be, really good on a big stage. It's going to be an interesting draft season, I'll tell you what. Uh, I do want to turn our attention to the National Football League now, and uh, let's just start with the big question that's hanging out there. You wrote about it in the walkthrough. Should we all be mentally and physically preparing for a Baltimore Ravens-San Francisco 49ers Super Bowl? <laughs> yes. Uh, and then when you try to make some kind of argument to the to the other side and say, well, it's not going to be that. That's not what's going to happen. You usually start with something like, well, you know, remember four years ago when Lamar Jackson was bad in the playoffs? It's like, yeah, okay, Lamar Jackson was bad in the playoffs. Tell me about Josh Allen now. Tell me about these other guys. Or you have to start saying, well, you know, Christian McCaffrey gets hurt and Debo Samuel gets hurt. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And what happens if, you know, C.D. Lamb and Micah Parsons get hurt? We have to do the same thing. If you're looking at who's the best teams, if you're using any statistical measure, if you've been watching football, particularly for the last month, the two best teams are, in this order, the Baltimore Ravens and the San Francisco 49ers. But we don't have to worry about that order unless they play each other. Uh, by the way, I'm looking at the, uh, I'm looking at the uh, odds right now. The Ravens are plus 140 to make the Super Bowl in the AFC. The 49ers are minus 120. So uh, the house agrees. The handicappers agree. The stats agree. Everyone agrees. It's 49ers-Ravens unless, you know, there, there's a volcano eruption or something. 
Um, we were subjected to the Seahawks run defense on Sunday. Oh, and actually, Pittsburgh plays Baltimore in its final game. Um, I don't know if Baltimore is going to have a full contingent of players uh, for the Steelers, so the Steelers might get lucky in that regards. Um, did you watch any of that game? Um, and if you did, have you ever seen worse tackling than what the Seattle Seahawks did against the Pittsburgh Steelers? Now, I did watch that game, and the, the tackling was horrendous. I saw worse tackling <laughs> on Sunday by a playoff team because I watched the Eagles. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Eagles, man. What is like? Actually, let's. I want to. I do want to talk about the Eagles, but I just want, just want your just general thoughts on where you think the Seahawks are headed. That's so tricky. On the first hand, they're a middle of the pack team, and on the second hand, I know we talk about it. You guys talk about it. Is the commitment to Geno Smith? It's on for another year or two, more or less. It's certainly on for next year financially. He looks like he limits them to a degree. Uh, you know, it, it's going to be hard to make the changes and improvements that that team makes, and that's the bad news. The good news is you can look at the Los Angeles Rams and say, how's this team going to get better? I mean, Stafford's fine. He had a couple picks yesterday. They're committed to guys like Aaron Donald who are fading. How are they going to get better? How are the Tampa Bay Buccaneers going to get better when all of their guys who are playing well are the guys that were there three years ago with Tom Brady and they're running on fumes? How do the Saints get better? They're committed to Derek Carr. How, how do these teams get better? So there's this middle of the pack in the NFC, you know, where the 49ers go do what they do, Eagles are our Cowboys go do what they do, Lions, and then there's this middle of the pack. And the best thing you can say about the Seahawks is they're no worse than those other teams. And maybe they're a little bit better than some of those other teams because they do have some younger talent. They have drafted pretty well in the last couple of years. And there's ways that you can look at and say, yeah, with Geno Smith, that quarterback, or, or you know, uh, you know, staying the course, they can get to being an 11 win team, you know, a, a top wild card team, a team that can contend with the San Francisco 49ers quicker than some of those other teams can. Um, I do want to circle back on the Eagles here because you mentioned them. And okay, I, I'm struggling to understand how exactly they've got to this point. Because remember, at one point this season, they were 10 and 1 and they had that win over the Cowboys. Like the NFC East was done and dusted at that point, they had it. And now they've lost four of their last five. There's that game on the weekend, a very bad loss to a very bad uh, Arizona Cardinals team. And you're looking at it and you're saying, what has gone wrong? How did the Eagles get to this point, Mike? It's hard to put a finger on you. And this loss was similar. You guys saw the Seahawks-Eagles game, and the Eagles were winning late in that game. Um, and then, like, their defense sort of collapses in the fourth quarter and they make an offensive mistake or two, and the Seahawks get that win. This was like a much – the Cardinals are much worse than the Seahawks, a much worse version of that where the Eagles are winning 20-6, to 21-6. Looks like they have things under control, and they can't stop a handoff. They're just getting outcoached and outmuscled and outhustled on defense. And when you look at the bodies on defense, even if you account for injuries – Eagles front four alone should have won that game. Eagles front four should have just dominated the line of scrimmage and you make some tackles and, you know, instead of giving up an eight-yard run, it's a four-yard run and the Cardinals can't convert. It's stunning. Now, a lot of fingers getting pointed at the defensive coaching staff. I think that's accurate. I think Sean Desai has done a bad job. I think Mike Patricia has done a worse job. But it's beyond that because it's they, they don't teach the guys how to tackle. <laughs> they don't teach the guys the basic fundamentals of coverage. And I think uh, from a team-wide Eagle situation, it's like a, a confidence crisis right now that's not going to be solved 
during this regular season or certainly in the playoffs. The team that beat the Eagles in last year's Super Bowl, the Kansas City Chiefs, finally clinched the AFC West. Mm-hmm. Yay! But it is obviously uh, a Kansas City Chiefs team that isn't the same as last year and kind of looks like an also-ran in the AFC. Uh, do they have a shot at making a run in the playoffs, or are they, as you put it very cleverly, uh, the Eagles wearing red uniforms? <laughs> That's it. You know, they're the Eagles, except all their problems are concentrated in one place. The receivers, the receivers, the receivers. Defense is okay. Offensive line plays pretty well. Mahomes is more or less fine, although you see him pressing and trying to do too much. It's this one bad unit as opposed to this, like, you know, short circuit that goes from, you know, from all around the house and like the Eagles have there. And I don't, I don't see them making a serious run in the playoffs because the whole argument comes down to Mahomes will set us free. That's a tall order in this particular playoffs. You know, the Baltimore Ravens are so much better than everybody else. The Buffalo Bills are playing better. You know, the Dolphins run hot and cold. But when they're hot, if you're let's put it this way, if you're looking for a team that say, well, they're just going to score a bunch of points and that's going to solve the problems, that's the Dolphins. That's who they're going to be. If you're, if you're looking for a team that's like, well, the defense will clamp down no matter what happens, that's, that's the Browns right now. It's hard to find what the Chiefs' niche is except they're the defending champions. Yeah, even, even in the Tom Brady heyday, that wasn't enough. When the team was flawed, that wasn't enough to say, well, that's it. They're going to make their run. I don't think it's going to be enough for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, do you think the Bears could pull the upset and beat the Green Bay Packers? Because the Seahawks need that to happen uh, in order to oh make the playoffs. It, it can because any team can upset the Green Bay Packers because, A, the Packers' defense tends to brown out. B, the one thing that the, Panther, the Packers' defense always sort of fades on is scrambling quarterbacks. It's always, for the Packers, it's always the first time, going back to, you know, the Colin Kaepernick and the 49ers in the playoffs, first time they've ever seen a read, a read option every single week, no matter who uses against it. That's a problem. And the Bears are playing a little bit better football right now. If you watch the Bears, uh, Fields is a little bit better than he was. Uh, DJ Moore is unbelievable right now. Their defense has firmed up significantly. Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't circle, I wouldn't circle that uh, upset for Seahawks fans. I'm sorry. But it is possible. I'm saying there's a chance. What do you think is going to happen with Justin Fields? The Bears are going to pick first overall from Carolina. A lot of people just expecting them to take Caleb Williams, the quarterback out of USC. So where does that leave Fields? I think what's going to happen, the start of the offseason, they're going to make these sort of vague statements, and, 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 the, and the Bears are going to wait to see if the Broncos call. Like, hey, you guys want Justin Fields? You, you, you want to overpay? You want to do something crazy? They're going to wait for some of these other teams. They're waiting for the Patriots to call. They're going to see what happens in the coaching carousel. And if some team, you know, looks around and says, hey, you know what? We, we don't have a good quarterback solution right now. We're late in the draft, whatever. Uh, let's, let's, let's do business with Justin Fields. If they don't get a really interesting offer, I believe the Bears will, instead of going after Caleb Williams, will try to trade the pick move down a couple slots, kind of like what they did last year, see if they can get like a Marvin Harrison or somebody like that and roll for another year. Fields keeps going back and forth. You keep seeing the talent and you keep seeing enough mm-hmm. uh, uh, like management to say, yeah, don't give up on this. Don't give up on this because the talent's unbelievable and he's, he's learned this and he's learned that. And then just when you believe in him, he fumbles or the second half of a game comes and he can't move the ball anymore. So very tricky. They'll look around, I think, to see if someone's going to solve the problem for them by making them an offer they can't refuse. Well, let's talk about those Denver Broncos. When Sean Payton <laughs> took that job, do you think he had any intention of working with Russell Wilson long-term? No. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's clear, right? It's, cl- it's clear. He he's, sig- yeah. he's signaled that from the beginning. All that stuff that turned into a Jets drama, because everything turns into a Jets drama, was him signaling in the organization. The Russell Wilson the stuff, you know, the, the diva stuff is not happening. I'm already mad at it. I'm not accepting it. I'm looking for a way out of it. That was the beginning. The only, the only exit strategy would have been if Wilson, you know, threw three touchdowns a game and, like, really demonstrate, like, look, the, the, you know, the, the, the five-years-ago version of me is still here. As soon as that wasn't happening, Peyton began looking for a way to sour that relationship. You wrote in the walkthrough on that note, you said, quote, few coaches handle message control and behind-the-scenes politics like Sean Payton does. Uh, can you expand on that as it regards to the decision and timing of the decision to bench Russell Wilson? Well, what happened was, and we got all this, and Wilson corroborated stories that were you know, uh, uh, told by insiders everywhere. The, the Broncos began threatening to bench him if he didn't waive his uh, injury clauses, injury guarantees, around week eight, week nine, I forget exactly when, but it was after a win. It was at a point when the Broncos was like, ah, you guys are four and four or five and four, whatever you turn the corner. Peyton starts r- rattling sabers. Now, to his credit, Wilson doesn't void these guarantees. I would never recommend anyone void guarantees in their contract. That's nuts. <laughs> so he, he, so they played, they played poker, they played chicken, and Sean Payton didn't bench him right away because Sean Payton was waiting for a chance to bench him against an opponent that would basically lose no matter what. And so it would look like a vindication. He waited, waited, waited until the Chargers came along with no Justin Herbert, no Brandon Staley, no Keenan Allen, no this, no that, no the other thing, and said, here's a team I can beat with Jared Stidham. Mm-hmm. And that's when he made the move. And, we're, we're gonna, and also the whole idea that you wait six weeks with this hang, hanging over Wilson, so there's this backroom thing, he was looking for an excuse to make Wilson look more like the bad guy during this. That's what he's trying to do. He wants Wilson to pop off. He wants there to be like this drama. He wants something like that so he can look like he's the one in control and he's the one making the decision. And, you know, he has not formally said anything about his role in all this. So that's what you're getting with Sean Payton. Now, the, the <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm cracking up here. No, I know. The Broncos should be used to that. Going back to the days of Mike Shanahan, he did stuff like that. Their coaches were generally good at that. And that new ownership group looks like it's full of people with you know, a lot of political history who know how to play this sort of game. And so that, that's, that's what you're going to see from the Broncos moving forward. We're speaking to Mike Tannier, our NFL insider from The Messenger here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Mike is also our Monday morning quarterback, brought to you on a Tuesday, and he is brought to you by the Clayton Public House. Pre-game to post-game, the Clayton Public House is your home of football. Catch all the action on 15 screens and two giant projectors. Uh, visit them online at theclaytonpub.com. Mike, uh, prior to our show in the morning, we air uh, some CBS Sports Radio, and I was driving in this morning. They are still, still talking about Dan Campbell's decision-making at the end of Detroit's 20-19 <laughs> loss to the Cowboys on Sunday Night Football, in which he went for it not once, not twice, but thrice for a two-point yeah. conversion to win the game. What did you make of Dan Campbell's decision-making uh, all three times? All three times it did not work for the Lions. Okay, well, the, the first time I like going for two there. It's the aggressive move. That's who they are. The percentages are pretty good. You go for it. You, you, you convert. There's a bad officiating mistake, which, by the way, I like the fact that, like, pro football talk has landed on, you know, Campbell should have double explained it to the referees. Uh, uh, okay, you're, you're going too far with the take here. Back off, back off. Uh, anyway, so, so that happens. 
he's livid. At that point, someone should have gotten in his ear and said, Coach, it's time to kick the extra point. You're not going to convert from the seven-yard line. That's too hard. The running game is out of position. You don't have a Lamar Jackson who threatens with the run. Cowboys are going to make this. Then they get another chance again with that penalty, and he still does it. Yeah, there's decisions you can make as a coach when you're rising up through the ranks and you're trying to set a tone and get guys to believe in you. And, and it can be that kind of aggro, yeah, fourth and ten, let's do it. You can do that kind of thing. You're not really, you're not really playing with house money anymore. Now it's like the consequences come in. You could lose a playoff game. You could lose playoff seating. Uh, uh, you know, you can stand toe to toe with teams like the Cowboys in the playoff in, in the playoffs in overtime. You don't have to do these crazy things to try and get them off guard. Campbell has to sort of dial down and throttle down to that level on fourth and goal from the seven or, or two-point conversion from the seven because he's not going to be helping his team or himself if he keeps making aggro decisions like that. Mike, you're the best, man. Thanks a lot for doing this. As always, we really appreciate it. Happy New Year once again, and enjoy the rest of the week. We'll do this again next Monday. Happy New Year. Take care and enjoy your week. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. That's Mike Tanier, our NFL insider from The Messenger here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Are you ready to uh, say you were wrong about uh, the Peyton-Russell Wilson dynamic in Denver? No, because there's still a week left in the regular season. Okay. Sean Payton could just walk away and say, you know what? You're, you're Dan Campbell. You're just like, you, you, won't, you won't give up on your take. I'm stubborn. Yeah. Like, so Halford's take was that uh, Peyton was going to quit he was just going to walk before away Russell of, Wilson was cut or traded or just walk away. away out of disgust. Just yeah. like, you know what? I should just go back to doing whatever it was I did prior to coaching the Denver Broncos. Can I be honest with you? No, that was one of your worst takes ever. Okay. Because Sean Payton is never going to take a job and be like, I'm going to quit. No one takes I- a job thinking they're going to quit. They take a job with optimism. And then two yeah, weeks he, in, he was, like, op- made- he was optimistic. He could he could <laughs> run Russell Wilson out of there. Yeah, and then right like that was that that, that that I mean, we all know Sean Payton. Like he's 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 won he's won Super Bowl. He's he's a pretty good coach, but he's also pretty um, cutthroat, right? Yeah, he had been away. I think for he some- took that job knowing that the Broncos had to move on from Russell Wilson. Right. Well, so he, how are you going to do it? He got hired as the Hatchet Man. Yeah, essentially, right? right? So in hindsight, right? Yeah. yeah, and I mean there I mean there have been some. <laughs> There have been some lows this season for Peyton, non-Russell Wilson related, like the time that they gave up 70 points to the Miami Dolphins. <laughs> so it's not like he's been infallible as a head yeah. coach. I, mean, I did enjoy that. Pretty big scrutiny. I did enjoy that month where Broncos fans were like, actually, we won the trade with the Seahawks. Like, you didn't. They marginally got back into playoff <laughs> contention. Yeah. But like, it's funny because I wanted to ask Mike about the sort of behind the scenes and what goes on for a head coach beyond the X's and O's and Part of this job, anyone that was going to inherit the Broncos' head coaching job was, how are you going to handle the Russell Wilson situation? And with Peyton, and that's why I brought up the timing and the sort of behind-the-scenes messaging, is there was a very, there were a couple of very obvious things that needed to happen from an organizational standpoint, regardless mm-hmm. of who the hatchet man was. And one was making sure that they weren't going to be on the hook for a, there's still going to be a massive financial penalty, but not a massive, massive financial penalty which is why they benched him the time that they did. And the other one was, and this is an important thing for the casuals, is he did the change at a time where you bring in a new quarterback and he kind of looks all right because you're playing against Easton Stick and the Los Angeles Chargers. Like, I mean, all those things matter in the NFL. Mm -hmm. There is a certain sense of window dressing and making things appear like you've got it in control when really you don't. Jared Stidham's probably not the answer at quarterback. But But for one week... 
He was. But it's 100% culture. Like, I don't think Russell Wilson's play, unless he was balling out at, like, an MVP level, I don't think that was going to change the intentions of Sean Payton. I don't think Sean Payton liked how Russell Wilson carried himself. Well, you put it this way. I think the the conversation that we had earlier, who was going to be first to go, mm-hmm. the, the only real takeaway should be that someone was going to have to go, right? I picked Payton. Yeah. You picked Wilson, mm-hmm. right? It's almost like it was orchestrated, but... Uh, that's just kind of the way that it, there was no way that they were going to live harmoniously past this year. Someone was going to have to go. Speaking of and now uh, it's Russ. Speaking of quarterbacks, and Mike Tannier suggested maybe Justin Fields goes to Denver once the Broncos cut Russell Wilson, walk away from him. Um, now, <laughs> the Broncos aren't going to cut Russell Wilson without some pain on the salary cap. Like That's going to be a tough one for them to walk away from just financially. They're going to do it. Russell Wilson isn't going to be the quarterback for the Broncos next season. He might be somewhere else, but not for the Broncos. He will not be for the Broncos. But Justin Fields, uh, that's a very curious situation right now in Chicago because the Bears have the first overall pick. They got it from Carolina in a trade. So most people just expect them to take Caleb Williams, get the star quarterback out of USC with the first overall pick. But there's a lot of people who still see potential in Justin Fields, and that includes us. Mm-hmm. Like we've watched Justin Fields a couple times and gone, like, yeah, he makes a lot, he makes some mistakes, right? But he's an unbelievable athlete, and there's something to be said for the receiving core that he's had for most of his time in Chicago. I just wonder if there's going to be I don't want to call it a sweepstakes, but I just wonder if the Bears commit to taking Caleb Williams, will there be a bunch of teams calling the Bears about Fields? Or could the Bears actually say, you know what? We're going to keep Fields ourselves, and we're still going to draft Caleb Williams, and we're just going to have them both together. Because I wonder also if teams are starting to learn that you don't need to just like force this quarterback into a starting role as soon as he comes in just because he's a top 10 pick. Because sometimes it doesn't work out so well. Uh, I don't mean to change the subject abruptly, but we absolutely need to do that because there is a major, major development from the World Juniors in Sweden this morning. Canada uh, locked in a 2-2 tie late in the third period with Czechia. Well, that's no longer. For those of you that don't want to know or don't want to hear it, avert your ears and turn away from your radios. With 11 seconds left in the third period of a World Junior quarterfinal in Sweden, Czechia has scored to go up on Canada 3-2 with 11 seconds 11 left. 11 seconds. 11 seconds left in oh, the man. third Double deflection period. and off the post and in. They just flung it on net, as Laddie said, a couple deflections in, off the post, and the World Juniors is over. It's over. As they, say, the as they say in international football, absolute <laughs> scenes right now. Oh, boy. From Sweden, as there's still 11 seconds remaining, but Czechia celebrating wildly as they take a 3-2 lead in a stunner. So Canada's going to be out in the quarters for the first time since it was hosted in Vancouver. If uh, I, I wish I would right? have double-checked that at the break, or one of us would have double-checked it. But hey, we're not professional radio guys by trade. Uh, I think you're right. I know though. this because most of the time they're, you know, in the gold medal game. That's right. Or at the very least playing for bronze. Not today, though, unless something miraculous is going to happen. Wow. In the final 11 seconds, Canada is going to bow out to Czechia at the 2024 
World Junior Hockey Championships. We got one final hour to go. We will come back on the other side with the final score from that game. You are listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.